Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Deadly escalation, airstrikes and rocket launches and ongoing violence between Israel and Gaza. Inflation increase, fears over rising prices weigh on investors and gas guzzlers. Panic buying causes fuel shortages following the US pipeline cyber hack. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, and we begin with breaking news once again from Israel. Fears of all-out war grow as fighting escalates between Palestinian militants and Israel. The death toll is rising as Hamas continues to fire rockets from Gaza and the Israeli military carries out airstrikes. Protests are being held in cities around the world as the international community calls for the violence to stop. Hadis Gold is live in Jerusalem for us and with the international reaction, Nick Robertson joins us from London too. Hadis, I'll begin with you. We saw you yesterday running in and out throughout the day to bomb shelter safety. Talk us through what you've seen in the last few hours this morning. Well, the air raid sirens have continued to wail across southern Israel, a warning of incoming rocket fire. And just in the past few hours, we've seen those air raid sirens go off uh, in places like Beersheba, which had not been targeted yet, as well as Ashdod, a city north of where we were yesterday. Uh, It's along the coast. The Israeli military says more than 1,000 rockets have thus far been fired from Gaza into Israel, including overnight last night when they were targeting Tel Aviv, which is a very serious escalation uh, uh, for the Israeli military sees it as very, very very serious escalation when those rockets target Tel Aviv. The Israeli military says it's continuing to strike militant targets in Gaza, saying just today that they've targeted rocket launchers, drone launchers, and anti-tank missile squad. And recently, they just announced that they killed a number of senior Hamas commanders. They say, that including those close to Mohammed Daif, the head of the Hamas armed wing. In the last few hours as well, an anti-tank missile was launched from Gaza into Israel, uh, wounding three Israelis, one of them potentially fatally. As it stands right Right now, and keep in mind, this is a very fluid and fast-moving situation. The Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza says that at least 48 people have been killed, including 13 children. The Israeli military says they are investigating any reports of civilian casualties, which they say they take very seriously. Uh, Israel says they have killed at least 20 militants. Uh, in Israel, at least five people have been killed by those rockets. Those people were killed in Ashkelon, in a city outside of Tel Aviv, and in the city of Lod, where an Israeli Arab father and daughter were killed. Uh, Lod actually has also become another flashpoint in all of this. Uh, it has been torn apart by violence recently between the Arab and Jewish residents there. It is a, what's known as a mixed city between Jewish and Arab residents. A, a Arab-Israeli man was shot by a Jewish-Israeli man. Uh, two synagogues were, were burned. Uh, the CNN crew that was there earlier said that the city currently looks almost like a war zone. Rocks strewn all about. Uh, cars burned out. The government has declared a state of emergency for Lod, not actually for the rockets, but because of 
of the unrest that they have seen there that just goes to show you that these tensions that started in Jerusalem, around East Jerusalem, around the Al-Aqsa compound, around uh, the situation in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood where Palestinian families face eviction, it then uh, went south towards Gaza when we started seeing those rocket fires and the Israeli military responding. It is now spreading, this tension, this unrest is now spreading to other parts of this region as well. Hala, stay right there for me for a second, Nick, because I want to bring you in. We've seen in the last hour Turkey, Russia adding their calls for calm to the United States and to the EU too, hoping for a de-escalation here. But it doesn't sound like, to what Hadas is saying, it's resonating with either the Palestinians or the Israelis. What more can be done? No, when Putin and Erdogan speak, uh, they're speaking to each other. They're not actually, um, you know, issuing a joint letter, it appears, or, or, or calling up anyone to, to offer direct guidance. They're saying, they're reiterating um, Erdogan, saying that, the, you know, the two-state solution is the only solution. Um, so that's that position. And it doesn't sort of, it doesn't put a break on the conflict. Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, has called for restraint for both sides to sort of pull back from the brink. Uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, has called his opposite number in Israel, Gabi Ashkenazi, again, saying the same thing, to, to try to de-escalate attention, um, condemning the uh, rockets fired by Hamas from Gaza into Israel. Um, Charles Michel, the uh, president of the European European Council, has also added his voice calling for the calm. You know, but what is absent here, uh, and it may be happening behind the scenes, it may be beginning to happen slowly, but what is absent is, is a sort of direct diplomatic intervention. Is anyone sending envoys? In the past, Egypt, uh, Qatar have helped broker um, a, a ceasefires in situations like this. Is Egypt sending somebody to Gaza to help there? Is the State Department potentially sending an official to, to engage with both sides uh, in Israel? And the, the situation that we've seen with the Biden administration calling for restraint, saying that Israel has the right to respond to rockets fired by Hamas and other militants from Gaza, um, and calling for restraint on both sides. But but. It was noticeable that President Biden, when he came to office, didn't call, uh, you know, the parties in, in, in Israel or the Palestinian Authority either. Um, he was very slow to have a phone call with Benjamin Netanyahu. It's clear that this was not an issue that he particularly wanted to engage in. Of course, now it's taking up some of his attention. What leverage now, quickly, is he going to have, uh, if he chooses to, certainly going to take some political and diplomatic capital, but it's not clear what he's putting on the line at the moment. Yeah, and a greater focus of, of influence perhaps as well. Hadass, what are people in Jerusalem saying to you? Are they preparing for this to be ongoing engagement, perhaps even to worsen? Well, the Israeli military says that it is prepared for a lengthy operation. They have not specified how long they said that this will go on for, but they say they are prepared for it to go on for some time. And they've actually been calling up thousands of reserve troops uh, to assist in, in a possible operation. So far, we haven't seen any sort of ground operation of, of any sort of indication that there could be a ground operation into Gaza. It has all mostly been uh, airstrikes, uh, uh, planes flying over. This is actually something we heard yesterday when we were in, Ash in Ashkelon. We'd hear planes buzzing overhead. We'd hear some explosions in the distance. And then often a few minutes later, we would hear the air raid sirens, meaning that rockets were incoming. And it was sort of this back and forth all day long. Uh, but as of right now, the Israeli military says that it is uh, targeting specifically uh, some senior Hamas leaders uh, that yesterday they 
demolished a building that they said uh, hosted important offices uh, for Hamas intelligence operations as well as for their rocket operations. They completely leveled that building. We've seen some really dramatic video of that building known as the Hanadi Towers. It's about 13 floors coming down and they say that they will continue targeting uh, any sort of, of uh, militant locations that they say uh, threatened Israeli citizens specifically and especially uh, rocket launching pads, drone launching pads, anti-tank missile units. Uh, they see this as uh, they see the rockets launched towards here in Jerusalem, which happened on Monday, as well as to Tel Aviv as just an unacceptable escalation. They will respond. And then, of course, uh, in Gaza, the uh, the militants there so that they will respond uh, in, in force for what they say are unacceptable military airstrikes on on their cities, on their people. Hadas, thank you for your perspective. Hadas Gold and Nick Robertson there. Thank you both. We will come back to you throughout the day on CNN with further developments. Okay, let's turn around now to our top business stories. It's another day of inflation fixation on global markets where concerns over soaring commodity prices, parts and labor shortages and the ongoing effects of the colonial pipeline cyber attack continue to weigh on sentiment. The United States reporting within the past hour that consumer prices rose by a much hotter than expected 0.8% month over month in April. And that's a 4.2% jump year over year. It's the biggest price rise in well over a decade. Now, one month, as I always say, does not a trend make, but it's worrying some news for investors. All the details on this coming up very shortly. Today's data comes as the colonial pipeline, of course, outage pushes U.S. fuel prices to near six-year highs with gas lines in the U.S. growing. Many stations running short as the pipeline owners grapple to get operations fully back online. What does this all mean? Well, it means U.S. futures are soft amid the pricing and petrol perturbation. The Dow suffering its worst day since February on Tuesday, while the Nasdaq ended unchanged, recovering early, earlier 2% losses Asia, meanwhile, was a hive of inflationary sounding activity too. The Nikkei hit by a 10% drop in Nissan Motors. Nissan's saying it won't return to profitability this year due to chip shortages and raw material price hikes. Stark contrast, though, with Toyota, who issued upbeat guidance due in part to stockpiled chips, hmm, making all the difference there. And in Europe, EU officials raising their 2021 growth forecast by a half a percent to 4.3%. They see inflation contained to under 2% this year. No such luxury for the United States. Inflation, once again, our top focus there. Christine Romans joins me now. Wow, is all I can say. I mean, the comparables, admittedly, with a year ago are important too. But what was driving this, Christine? Used cars, a real eye-opener. Yeah, that was 10% gain in used cars. And another report we know had showed this week that used car prices in this country are above $25,000 for the first time ever. So we know that there's a shortage there that's driving up those prices. We know even when you strip out food and energy, when we look at the so-called core inflation, that monthly number increased nine-tenths of a percent. That's the hottest core monthly rate since 1982. You remember 1982. Actually, I don't really remember 1982, but I know in economics what it means when you talk about the 70s and 80s and some of those some of those uh, really hot months of inflation in those in those years, you know, when you go down the line, I mean, we've seen everything from chicken to gas to home prices to wallboard to steel to used car prices, just about everything going up. And it's not only going up because of the reopenings in the hot economy, Juliet, right? It's going up because we've got these weird bottlenecks and supply shortages that are driving things up. And the Fed so far and the Treasury Secretary have said these are temporary 
uh, price increases, but we just won't know for sure. Only time will tell that. $25,000 average price of a used car. What's the average income in the United States? Isn't it something that household income is in the low 60s, I think, in, in the U.S.? So, yeah, I mean, that just show, that shows you how distorted everything is as we're coming out of the COVID collapse. I wonder, though, about these numbers, and I'm interested in your thoughts, because we've been talking about prices rising for everything for several weeks now. The stock market's had a couple of freakouts over it. Is there anything in here, really, that is new, or does this confirm mm. what we've all been thinking about what the economy is looking like post-COVID? So we had this conversation with Paul Krugman on the show last week, Nobel Laureate, and he said it depends on the speed of unworking some of these kinks. And actually, compared to the past, we're far more efficient at unblocking some of these supply chain blockages. And actually, that will relieve some of the pricing pressures that we're seeing. Maybe that works on the supply side with goods. What about labor? What about labor supply? And that has been the big debate, hasn't it? And it's becoming an increasingly um, vigorous debate and, 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 and really heartfelt debate among some people because you have this notion that there's this free lunch in America of $300 extra a week in unemployment benefits. And that's keeping people home on their couches rather than going out and doing their patriotic duty of, of taking their job back that they had before the, the pandemic struck. And it's just not as simple as that. Um, we have schools that are not fully open. We have elderly relatives and, and family members who are still trying to protect against infections that are still happening in, in this country. And we have jobs that are open that may not match the skills of the people who are going back into the workforce. We have people in frontline uh, hospitality jobs, frankly, who are, who are retraining for tech and finance because Frankly, they don't want to go back to the job that they used to have. So less about the unemployment benefits as being some sort of free lunch that for the, their free loaders. And the, I would say you're having a real um, reawakening in the American labor market and a readjustment in the labor market. And it took maybe COVID to do that. Reallocation friction. I think is the uh, technical term for this, where people are simply going, you know what, I don't want to go do that job anymore. I want to retrain and do something right. else. And now I've been bought some time to do it. Fascinating. Christine Romans, thank you for that. Nice to see you. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the the stories making headlines around the world. This hour, U.S. House Republicans are set to topple their third highest ranking member. Liz Cheney continues to publicly reject former President Donald Trump's lie that he won the 2020 election. Ahead of the meeting, Cheney defended her position. She told Republicans she would lead the fight to restore their party once she's ousted. Republicans are expected to replace Cheney with New York Representative Elise Stefanik, an outspoken defender of Donald Trump. Almost every state and territory in India has now imposed COVID restrictions to try and contain the country's outbreak. The Prime Minister is still refusing to implement a full national lockdown, even in the midst of a rising death toll. On Wednesday, India reported its highest number of new fatalities, with more than 4,200 people losing their lives to the pandemic. COVID cases are also rising across South and Southeast Asia. Laos recorded its first coronavirus death on Sunday amid skyrocketing infections. Thailand may consider halting more international flights since detecting two cases of the COVID variant first identified in India. Meanwhile, Nepal extended a lockdown in Kathmandu through May 27th after reporting a record number of COVID deaths on Tuesday. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, former New York Fed President Bill Dudley warns the markets are in for a rate rise surprise. He joins us right after this, and America's energy CEOs need to wake up to the ransomware risk, says a top federal energy regulator. We'll discuss what needs to be done. 
Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks look set to pull back for a third straight session after a much hotter than expected read on U.S. inflation. Rate sensitive tech stocks set to take the hardest hit down some one percent, as you can see there for Nasdaq futures. Let me give you the numbers. Consumer prices rising 0.8 percent last month and 4.2 percent year over year. It's the biggest rise in well over a decade. Prices for hot commodities like U.S. crude, lumber, steel continue also to move higher today, red hot copper pulling back slightly there from record highs. Commodity price hikes reflected in yesterday's almost 7% year-over-year rise in Chinese producer prices too. It's not just a U.S. story. Former New York Federal Reserve President Bill Dudley is out with a sobering assessment of the current inflationary environment. He says higher prices will be part of what forces the Fed to raise rates faster than investors currently anticipate. And uh, now to some breaking news. U.S. House Republicans have voted to remove Liz Cheney from the party's leadership. Cheney has clashed with some in her party over her criticism of former President Donald Trump. She publicly rejected his claim that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Cheney held the party's third highest ranking post and she'll be replaced by Elise Stefanik, an outspoken defender of Trump. So that simply happening in the last few moments. Okay. As I was saying, uh, Bill Dudley joins us now after that warning on uh, future rate rises happening far faster than at least the market is predicting. Bill, fantastic to have you with us. Former being the operative word now, because you can actually tell us what you really think as opposed to being restricted when you're an FOMC, uh, FOMC member. I do want to talk to you about rising rates, but I just wanted to get your view on that inflation print this morning. What do you make of it? Well, it was actually anticipated that we were going to see some bad inflation news for a while for two reasons. Number one, uh, we're throwing out very low readings from a year ago. And number two, as we start to reopen the economy, there's going to be a lot of frictional cost to reallocated resources where they're needed. Now, that said, this is even worse than uh, I, I imagined. Uh, I started writing about this uh, in December, that this was going to be a emerging risk for markets. Uh, but it's actually turned out to be more powerful than I had anticipated. I mean, the Fed's halfway to its 2% annual target in just one month by these numbers. Yeah, the Fed's going to look at this as transitory, and they've said that. I mean, what they're focused on is is the labor market. Uh, there's about 8 million people uh, still unemployed because of the COVID pandemic, and the Fed's focused on getting those people back to work. As long as there's that degree of excess uh, labor in the U.S. economy, the Fed's going to look through these higher inflation numbers. So the real question is, how fast does the U.S. economy uh, normalize? How fast do we get those people to work? And that will de- that will determine the pace by which the Fed uh, finally decides to tighten monetary policy. On the labor point, I wanted to get your take on uh, a recent Washington Post article um, by Heather Long. She, in quite inflammatory terms, said this is not a labor shortage. It's a reassessment of work in America. We're seeing reallocation friction where we know that certain jobs have shifted and won't come back, but others And it's for the workers reassessing what they want to do. They want to retrain and go and do different things. They don't want to work in restaurants and risk themselves and get lower pay. Do you see that happening? What's your sense? Well, well, I think there's a a risk that we actually can't go back to where we were, that 3.5% unemployment rate that uh, we had in February of 2020. And it may be that the misallocation of, of labor 
means that uh, the full em employment rate, the employment rate consistent with, you know, 2% inflation is going to be a little bit higher than what it was in the past. And so we'll, we're going to find that out over the next, uh, you know, 24 months. Uh, the Fed's basically running a little bit of an experiment right now. They basically are going to run the economy hot. Uh, they want inflation to rise. And in fact, they want inflation to rise above uh, 2% on a sustained basis. What that means is they're going to be slow to tighten. But once they f finally have to start to tighten, they're going to have to tighten pretty rapidly to catch up. But you're saying and have written two quite potent op-eds in the last week or so saying, look, at this stage, the market's suggesting that even when the Fed raises rates, interest rates are only going to go to 2% and they're going to stay there. You think that's too low. You've also said the US 10-year rate, which is an underpinning really for the global financial system and currently at around 1.6% is also going to have to be significantly higher than people realize. Just talk us through why. Well, on the short-term rates, it's all about uh, the Fed's being slow and letting inflation climb above 2%. So if the Fed lets inflation climb above 2%, uh, short-term rates have to be higher as a consequence of the higher inflation. And they also have to be higher because the Fed's actually going to have to make monetary policy tight to keep inflation from continuing to go up. So that's it on short-term rates. So short-term rates, this cycle probably peak somewhere between three to four and a half percent. Long-term rates, it's really about what kind of uh, risk premium do people uh, uh, pay to invest in long-term assets? Bill, I'm going to have assets. to interrupt you there because um, Liz Cheney is speaking and we have to take her. Bear with okay, me. Sure. We cannot both uh, embrace the big lie and embrace the Constitution. And going forward, uh, the nation needs it. The nation needs a strong Republican Party. Uh, the nation needs a party that, uh, that is based upon fundamental principles of conservatism. And I am committed and dedicated to ensuring uh, that that's how this party goes forward, and I plan to lead the fight to do that. I will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have seen the danger uh, that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, we have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, and I think it's very important that we make sure whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the Constitution. I do not. I think that uh, it is uh, an indication of where the Republican Party is, uh, and I think that the party uh, is in a place that we've got to bring it back from, and we've got to get back to a position where uh, we are a party that can fight for conservative principles, that can fight for substance. We cannot be dragged backward uh, by uh, the very dangerous lies of a former president. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey guys, Liz Cheney, very straightforward there, as she's been these last several days. Jamie Gengel, though, back to, to, to my question, if you don't mind. Uh, the quintessential spinelessness uh, of refusing not even to count names, name names, but count numbers in this vote. What does that say? I think Kevin McCarthy was scared of what those numbers were. I am not suggesting in any way that Liz Cheney was going to win this vote or that it wasn't going to be lopsided. But I think Kevin McCarthy did not want those numbers out there. And maybe there were other uh, GOP members who did not want to have to go on the record. Mm -hmm. Clean and simple, because we had been hearing for a week now about a secret ballot that would give us numbers. Kevin McCarthy 
did not want that. That was a political uh, decision. I, I just want to add one thing. Um, Liz Cheney just said, I will do everything I can to make sure the former president never gets anywhere near the Oval Office. That is her long game. And as she said, she plans to, quote, lead the fight. She is now unleashed. She can say whatever she wants about Donald Trump. She can say whatever she wants about her colleagues. But her goal now is to see if she can wrestle the Republican Party back. Wow. Manu, the words that, that Jamie just reiterated is exactly what struck me most from from Cheney's remarks, right? So, and and, and uh, from Liz Cheney's remarks, and Jamie's reporting yesterday was like, this is the beginning of the war for, for Liz Cheney. So how does that practically play out in the halls of Congress? You know, she is still decidedly in the minority of the minority of the House Republican Conference about this very issue. Uh, she will be a outspoken voice. She'll have get a lot of attention when she speaks. But there are just so few members of the House Republican Conference or Senate Republican Conference, for that matter, who are going up against Donald Trump. Even the ones who are uncomfortable about the former president, they don't want, they recognize his power with the Republican base. So she has a significant challenge ahead if she were to she was going to try to use this in a way to bring, uh, to try to take, uh, prevent the former president from reemerging uh, in the political scene, given the support within the Republican conference. And, you know, one reason why even you know, perhaps both sides didn't want to have the voice vote today, it was or the secret ballot vote today, even if she did the, the reporting that I have done over the last several days and talking to a wide array of members, that a lot of the members who voted for her last time were unlikely to do so again, because they recognize just uh, how tense things have become within the Republican leadership, that this was just a situation that they needed to move on from. And she was expected to lose that vote on a pretty overwhelming basis. So a quick voice vote uh, essentially avoided uh, any pain on, that might be felt by um, both sides and forcing members to actually take a position. So it made things a little bit easier just to rip the Band-Aid off quickly and move on. And what happened inside the room, according to uh, multiple sources uh, who I've been texting with is that Virginia Fox offered the motion to kick her out of the conference. Uh, this came after Liz Cheney initially made those remarks, uh, which we talked about, where she defended what she's done, which she's warned her party not to follow the path of Donald Trump. Then came that motion by Virginia Fox. Kevin McCarthy spoke uh, briefly, said it was time uh, to unify. And then that's yep. when uh, that voice vote happened. So, so quick, within 20 minutes, despite what have we saw in February, hours long debate over Liz Cheney's future. She staved off that fight. But that, that challenge, but not this time. Yeah. Can I just add one one thing to Manu's uh, and Jamie's great reporting? And that is, it's, it's maybe obvious, but it's worth stating. She is not in the leadership anymore, but she's still a member of Congress. Yep. And she's still an mm-hmm. at-large member of Congress from the state of Wyoming. And people I've talked to around Liz Cheney see her primary fight which is not for over a year, August of 2022, as potential to be ground zero for the fight for the heart and soul of the GOP. Why is that? Because she has had tremendous support in her reelection, close to 70 percent. It is also a state where Donald Trump had 
one of the biggest, if not the biggest, I believe the biggest margin of victory in 2020. So it is going to be a real battle to see what happens, because he's obviously going to go in with guns blazing, trying to get rid of her and trying to oust her. We'll try to oust her from the Congress altogether. That's a great point. I think Donald Trump got 70 percent of the vote there in Wyoming. Liz Cheney got 69 percent. Exactly. And now it's like people are going to have to decide there which, which camp are they in. Mm-hmm. Um, J- Jamie Gangel, final thoughts as someone who uh, has reported so deeply like, like Dan and Manu on this and spoken to, to Liz Cheney. Uh, someone asked me yesterday if I thought she planned to run for president. Hmm. Uh, I don't know the answer, but I think it's a possibility. Hmm. I think that her words today about I will do everything to make sure that the former president never gets close to the Oval Office. That's the battle cry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question is, does everything include running against him? Right. Uh, And can she effectively, given the way the primaries are set up uh, by the Republican Party? Uh, Correct. Dana Bash, Jamie Gangel, Manu Raju, thanks so much to all of you. Thank you. Still to come, more breaking news at the top of the next hour. Uh, and, and, and tied to what we just saw happen, by the way, former members of the Trump administration leaders there will testify on Capitol Hill. The former acting defense secretary is said to explain why he was reluctant to send troops to the Capitol during the insurrection on January 6th. Details ahead. Plus, the cyber attack on a major pipeline has sparked fears of a gas shortage. A number of gas stations now out of fuel. I mean, is this a result of actual shortages uh, or are they being created by that fear? We're going to have the latest. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And as expected, we've got a lower open for the U.S. majors with the Dow extending the sharp 1.3 percent loss suffered during Tuesday's session. Rate sensitive tech stocks are seeing the biggest losses as 10 year bond yields push higher yields on the rise after a surprise reading on consumer price inflation. U.S. CPI rising at a much higher than expected annual rate of 4.2 percent last month. A big 10-year bond auction on tap two for later today. $41 billion in new supply set to hit the market. And a reminder of our top story, there are growing fears of all-out war after a deadly exchange of fire between the Israeli military and Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip. Israel says its forces have carried out an unprecedented operation to simultaneously kill several senior Hamas commanders. At least 10 Palestinians were killed in 75 Israeli airstrikes on Gaza this morning, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Ben Weedman is in Jerusalem for us. Ben, I think many people have been caught off guard by just how quickly this has escalated between strikes and and counter strikes. I remember vividly you were there in 2014. How does this compare? What do you make of what you're seeing? Well, this uh, escalation has been something the likes we haven't seen in quite some time. Certainly in 2014, uh, there was a much longer buildup. Uh, to it, keeping in mind, Julia, that uh, really, you know, the first major action in terms of uh, missile fire and Israeli strikes in Gaza happened on Monday evening. Since then, uh, the death toll on the Palestinian side is 
over 50, including 14 children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, and five Israelis as well. At this point, we know that the Israeli army has called up some of its reserves. It is deploying heavy armor in the Gaza area. Uh, we got a statement from the military wing of Hamas uh, saying that they are, had launched this afternoon four separate barrages uh, within Israel, as well as an offshore oil platform. Now, we don't have confirmation uh, that uh, those missiles actually hit that particular uh, target, but certainly uh, in terms of the speed that which events have been happening it is something unprecedented. But keeping in mind, of course, uh, that this is part of the cycle uh, that is normal. You will have a major outbreak of hostilities like we saw in 2014. And now, seven years later, we seem to be back where we were back then. But uh, the fundamental fact is uh, that as long as the struggle over this land continues between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and the fact that it has not been resolved and there doesn't seem to be any serious effort by anyone to actually resolve it, uh, that this cyclical return of war seems, in a sense, inevitable. Julia? Ben, we were talking earlier on the show with Nick Robertson about the calls for calm, the response from the international community and those saying, that is there a path to, to de-escalation in some form here? Can the international community help, Ben? Or is, to your point, the risk here that we see a further worsening of this situation rather than calm? Definitely the international community can help, but the international community isn't necessarily united at the moment. Now, in the past, Egypt has played a critical role because, of course, Egypt borders the Gaza Strip and has a lot of influence in Gaza. They have the ability uh, to convince the factions in Gaza to be quiet. Now, of course, you have a different dynamic on the Israeli side where you have an embattled prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is, who has been th the country has been through a series of inconclusive elections and therefore politically perhaps he sees it to his advantage to continue uh, this escalation. The United States, for instance, the most important provider of weapons and diplomatic support to Israel, uh, was relatively quiet in the build-up to this escalation when there was serious unrest here in Jerusalem over the question of forced evictions of Palestinians from their homes, over frictions about denying access to the old city or making it difficult for Palestinians. The United States was largely quiet. It's only when the fighting begins that the United States becomes involved and we'll have to see if they are willing to throw their full might behind some sort of effort to return to what will have inevitably be an, an, a temporary calm. Julia? Yeah, and your point about the domestic politics here as well, vital. Ben, ben Wiedemann in Jerusalem, thank you for that. Okay, more first move after the break. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to First Move in the United States. The petrol pumps are under pressure. Fuel shortages are rising and gas prices climbing after a critical pipeline was hacked along the East Coast in Georgia and Virginia. More than 15 percent of gas stations are now dry. Twenty five percent are empty in North Carolina. Sources tell CNN administration officials are privately frustrated with Colonial Pipeline's weak cybersecurity. Colonial says it's been in regular touch with the FBI and the White House since the attack. But in timely testimony to the Senate, top cyber officials say they need more information to safeguard the country against future threats. Cyber attacks on our nation's infrastructure are growing more sophisticated, frequent and aggressive. Malicious cyber actors today are dedicating time and resources towards researching, stealing, and exploiting vulnerabilities, using more complex attacks to avoid detection, and developing new techniques to target information and communications technology supply chains. Joining us now, Neil Katiji, head of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Neil, great to have you on the show. You said that this latest attack is a wake-up call, but then you've been warning about cyber risks for at least the last three years. What do we need to realize about this moment It's the new reality that we have to contend with that warfare in the 21st century has evolved to a place where now private sector companies find themselves on the front lines. And this is a real wake-up call, and I think all Americans need to take notice of it. If a missile had taken this pipeline out, we would clearly recognize it as an act of war or terrorism, a cyber attack that takes this critical pipeline out of service has the same economic and national security impact. And we all need to be cognizant of that. And at the federal government level, at the highest levels, working with industry, we've got to ensure that this does that, that we're ahead of these threats in the future. What role does the federal government ultimately play here? Because I get your point that federal government isn't reacting swiftly enough or aggressively enough. But then I look at some of the stats and we were just playing it on the screen here. 85 percent of the U.S. infrastructure, including power grids, communication networks and water treatment plants are controlled by private firms. So it's the private sector that needs to be beefing up its cybersecurity measures, surely, as well as any response from the federal government. Uh, it's it's both. So we at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, we regulate the security of the nation's electricity system. And while we evaluate applications for natural gas pipelines, the responsibility for regulating the national uh, the nation's pipeline system actually falls to TSA, the Transportation Security Administration. So the agency responsible for air, aviation safety, railroad safety, road safety also is responsible for pipeline safety. But in 2017, TSA confirmed that it had just six full-time employees tasked with securing more than 2.7 million miles of natural gas, oil, and hazardous liquid pipelines that traverse the country. We put pressure on TSA a couple of years ago. They stepped up. Uh, They have uh, expanded their pipeline security program and strengthened their guidelines recently. But clearly there's more work that needs to be done. Uh, I define that as complete insanity. I mean, you wrote an op-ed about this for Axios in 2018. Six full-time employees looking after 2.7 million miles of natural gas, oil and hazardous liquid pipelines. What does stepping up look like in this case? And this brings it back to a government response required now, because we have discussions going on within the US government. But, Neil, you know, when I look at what they're doing, it's not enough when we're talking about the scale of the threat. 
We're seeing it playing out. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I've called for this for a couple of days now. Every CEO in the energy sector, and especially pipeline CEOs, should immediately, immediately convene their incident management teams to do a deep dive review of their security posture and protocols. Uh, I think that if it, it is incumbent upon the U.S. government at its highest levels to be firm and clear that we will not tolerate nation states like Russia that harbor ransomware teams and that we're going to defend our national interests, we got to step up. So you asked what stepping up means. In example, where companies don't have multi-factor authentication measures in place, you may need to bring in outside cybersecurity experts to perform a deep top-to-bottom review. Do that and do that now. Why isn't there more alarm? I I loved your analogy at the beginning of this conversation where you said if a rocket would have hit those facilities, there would be outrage, there'd be alarm. Do you think actually public pressure as we watch gas prices rise in the United States perhaps creates some of the urgency that you and I are talking about here? Because I think we recognise the threat this represents. I mean, the number of attacks, I believe, in 2020 was up 300 percent. We're sitting ducks, particularly when people are, are working from home. So this is new. To, to us in the energy sector, uh, and uh, there are gaps that we are identifying and trying to fill. Just as a simple example, um, I had a pipeline uh, CEO a couple of years ago tell me that he had been briefed by ODNI that his system was vulnerable, but no one in his company had a security clearance high enough to even get briefed to know where to make investments to protect their system. I think uh, it, it is high time that folks recognize that the energy sector and energy companies are at the front lines and we need to do everything we can to share information to ensure that they're briefed and are prepared because, as you pointed out, these attacks have been coming and let's not buy, be naive. They're going to continue to come. I was literally going to ask you that. Is that the assumption that you're making now is that we are going to see vital infrastructure in the United States, if not around the world, because it is a global story, but in the United States specifically, attacked again? I think that our adversaries are sophisticated. Uh, I think they will continually adapt. This is why I have been uh, stopping short of calling for mandatory standards, because I think standards are the floor. We have to go much above standards. We have to be as sophisticated as our adversaries, as coordinated as our adversaries across the federal government, state government, industry, uh, to stay ahead of these evolving threats. You know, Neil, you're also a proponent of alternative energy sources as well, as I was looking through some of the comments that you've made over over recent years. And I can't help but look at the the queues at pumps and the shortages that we're talking about and think that this is probably the best advert for electric vehicles out there. What do you think of that? It's a tangent, but it's an important point too. Well, Uh, I'm a big proponent of electric vehicles and renewable energy. But what this incident shows is that, you know, we're still dependent on our critical energy infrastructure. And uh, until we can get to a future where uh, the grid and uh, our our transportation fleet are electrified, we've got to still lean on and depend on our existing infrastructure. And this incident shows how critical it is and why we've got to protect it. Yeah, there are no immediate alternatives. We have to protect what we have. Neil, great to have you with us. Thank you for sounding the alarm.
Neil Catterjee there, Commissioner of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, it's been wowing art lovers for centuries. Now the Renaissance masterpiece has been recreated with the latest technology. Meet Digital David. Next. Welcome back to First Move. Expos or World Fairs are known for showcasing the latest in technology and innovation. And at this year's Expo 2020 in Dubai, Italy will present the, an exact copy of the famous statue of David by Michelangelo made by a 3D printer. Anna Stewart shows us the digital David in today's Road to Expo. More than 500 years, it stood in the Italian city of Florence as a symbol of strength and youthful beauty. Michelangelo's David, the heroic biblical figure in the act of confronting the giant Goliath. Over the last year, state-of-the-art technology was used to make the most authentic replica ever made. High-resolution cameras scan the 17-foot marble statue for all its minute characteristics and details. Then, the world's largest 3D printer set to work. It was uh, really a great challenge. We decided to use the technology of the future, that is 3D printer. That's why it was difficult to find a printer able to print big pieces. Uh, at the end, we divided it in 14 pieces and uh, we had to reassemble them together. At a cost of over $360,000, the result is a 17-foot replica, complete with cracks, staining, abrasions and even marble dust. Made from acrylic resin, it weighs 10 times less than the original. Last month, the new Digital David travelled more than 4,000 kilometres to Dubai. Unveiled as the centrepiece at the Italian Pavilion for Expo 2020. Expo is a border chain. It's a place in the world where the new world post-pandemic will start. So it's a perfect point in the world to show the vision to renaissance, to recovery, to the new startups of our life. Its presence is taking on greater significance for Florence, whose tourism sector has been battered by the pandemic. Millions of people that are, are coming here, Expo Dubai 2020, I'm sure they would like immediately to visit Florence to know the real history of David. Digital David will stand before the public during Expo 2020 for six months from October. Its fate afterwards is as yet unknown. Anna Stewart, CNN. Wow. All right, one last look at the markets. U.S. majors are softer in early trade, but off-session lows amid growing U.S. inflationary fears. The U.S. reporting that consumer prices spiked at a year-over-year rate of 4.2% last month. That's twice as high as uh, most estimates. This is the second big economic surprise for the markets in a week after Friday's disappointing job report. High prices for used cars, hotels and airfare all led to last month's CPI advance. And finally... 
let's just sit here and appreciate something beautiful. No, not me. Take a look at this. Talk amongst yourselves while I admire this purple pink diamond, which is expected to sell for nearly $40 million at a Hong Kong auction next week. The nearly 16-carat Sakura diamond is named after the Japanese word for cherry blossom. Christie says it's the largest flawless diamond of its kind ever to be sold at auction. Wow. That's very pretty. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.